Welcome to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Healthineers about medical breakthroughs with the power to improve lives everywhere. Today, Siemens Healthineers Executive VP Magnetic Resonance, Arthur Kindle, talks with his guests about the recent and eventful history of MRI. We're also taking you into the scanner to hear why it makes those unusual sounds. Nobody really loves being in an MRI scanner, although I myself find it uh, very, uh, very comforting in there. I usually fall right to sleep. That was Dr. Bruce Rosen, who is Arthur's guest today, along with Franz Schmidt, Jürgen Hennig, and Dr. Vivek Mutharangu. Hello, I'm Arthur Kindl. In 1971, the chemist Paul Lauterbach made a discovery that would revolutionize the way we look inside the human body with magnetic resonance imaging. Until then, magnetic resonance had been used to study chemical structures only. By introducing gradients or loops of wire to the magnetic field, Lauterbach found he could determine the origin of radio waves emitted from the scanned subject and thus produce images of the human body. In the 70s and 80s, MRI became the work of many hands. How much were its early engineers aware of this novel technique's potential? I asked my first guests, Franz Schmidt and Professor Jürgen Hennig, who were, as they put it, part of the MR generations 1.5 and 2.0. Jürgen, 50 years ago, almost down to the day, Paul Lauterbach came up with the idea of using strong magnetic fields and applying radio waves and doing some intelligent mathematics behind it to create magnetic resonance imaging. Was it really such a simple idea? I think in hindsight, many great ideas, they look simple, and that's a hallmark of uh, great ideas. Paul really took that big jump to see that this is something which A, could make a real image, not just measure a position, which is what has been done before, and B, that this could even be used in humans, which was also a big break with the field because nuclear magnetic resonance was about measuring extremely pure samples, a, a mixture of substances like a human tissue. So that was really a truly revolutionary leap, which took uh, a lot of courage more than anything else. Franz, uh, you were part of the very, very beginnings of it at uh, Siemens. Did you guys think about it that you were after something big at that time? I finally understood that MRI is a great clinical method when we installed our first EPI prototype at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. Stroke imaging by using diffusion weighting was for me the great moment, which made it even into the New York Times. And then it really took off when Lauterbuhr himself visited the, uh, the labs in Erlangen. We had even Peter Mansfield, the other Nobel laureate, working for, I think, half a year. And they started, I think, in, in 78, uh, developing the first MRI scanner, which was built up in the research facility in, in a wooden shed without any nails and, and so on, just to avoid anything magnetic, basically. This fit-for-purpose shed might have solved the problem of metal interference, but there was more to overcome. The frequency of the nuclear resonance was in the same range as radio waves, 
So the engineers expecting MRI signals got broadcasts from the local radio station instead. To block these electromagnetic fields, they built a Faraday cage around the MRI machine and placed it inside the shed. The machine worked, and in it, they scanned the very first image, a bell pepper. Franz and, and Jürgen, I could imagine at those days that uh, you had a huge array of challenges and problems that you needed to resolve to bring the idea to life, to create the first uh, MRI systems uh, for human imaging. How did you tackle it that time? The first scanner I worked on, in order to start that scanner, you had to punch in a hex code, which took several minutes. And when you did something wrong, you had to start all over again. And it, it was painful work. I really kind of took off when the development of the fast imaging methods came up. I was involved in the image reconstruction there and, and the gradient development. And when I started, gradient performance was at one or two millitesla per meter at a rise time of one or two millisecond. We are now at 300 millitesla per meter and a rise time of 100 or 200 microseconds, so orders of magnitudes away. When I started uh, already at that time, Sir Peter Mansfield, he had published uh, his so-called echoplanar imaging technique, which is extremely fast, but made extremely poor images uh, with the equipment at that time. But he had already published the idea that by collecting data multiple times after a single excitation, one could basically speed up the imaging process uh, tremendously. Together with the developers of Brooker, it was a small team for people. We discussed how to implement that. After a few days, we knew how to do it. I thought, yeah, well, let's, let's try to do an image in a single shot. It was great to see we could get an image in a few seconds rather than a few minutes. Let's talk about how these machines were improved. In the development process, quite a high of degree of self-experimentation was expected. I was a PhD student at Siemens back in 95, and I remember vividly Franz Schmidt asking me like half an hour before I wanted to go home to volunteer. I was pretty scared when I had to go into the test machine. So anybody else, uh, or was it just me? Everyone went into the magnet. I was in there at least for 100 sessions, up to one hour per session, sometimes even longer. Your colleague had a sequence idea, you went in, and vice versa. And at the other end of the scanner, at the terminal, how did it feel actually seeing the results of those scans? Jürgen, any comments? The first time I went to a scanner when a patient was in and I saw a sagittal image of the head, I had a feeling like vertigo. I had seen, of course, anatomical sketches from a brain, but to see an image of a brain of a person which was right in front of me, that was so outrageous. I couldn't believe it. It really impressed me very deeply that we can do that. I've been meaning to ask you about experiencing such pioneering moments. You, Jürgen, had the opportunity to install the very first MRI system in China. Can you tell us more about that? I was really keen to make that uh, experience. China at that time was totally different from what it is today. It I couldn't take uh, very much uh, equipment with me. I remember one instance 
where the sequence control actually, that's the heart of the machine, which drives all the operation, didn't work. So we looked up in the manual the device code of that special device, and then we translated the device code on piece of paper into binary numbers. And then we looked for that pattern on the oscilloscope and followed the signal from the I.O. bus to the device and up until where it vanished. And then we knew that was the broken component. After a week, we had it fixed. And on Christmas morning, 1 a.m. 1985, we made the very first image of a human volunteer, which was actually the night guard. Jürgen, I learned that you also took non-human subjects into the scanner. Throughout my career, I have been very promiscuous uh, in the use uh, of MR. I had a radiological colleague who was also very yeah, artistically inclined, uh, so we had good uh, connections with the local museum. So we had hundreds of years old Chinese wooden statues, and it was totally astounding that we could count the three rings, so we could actually determine the age of the wood which was uh, used. I'm always uh, and continue to be astounded what can be done with that one simple, single method. If you have ever been inside an MRI scanner, you won't soon forget those clanging noises. Why are they there? What role does sound play in MRI? Franz Schmidt talks us through the developments in sound over the years. A scanner consists of a big magnet and a coil of copper wires, similar to what you might find in a loudspeaker. When a current runs through that coil, a special force makes it vibrate and release sound. Sound is just a byproduct of the MRI machine. We get it when we run various pulse sequences to create image contrast. Erwin Hahn's spin echo technique was first invented in the 50s for spectroscopy and it was used from the late 70s on for MR imaging as an early sequence type. When acquiring a single slice, a cross-sectional image, the rhythm you hear is down to its repetition time, which can be on the order of several seconds. This beat had to be repeated many times to acquire an entire image. The process could take 10 minutes or more. In multi-slice imaging, the pause between the beats are filled with the acquisition of many other slices. This lets us speed up the time it takes to get the images. In 1977, Sir Peter Mansfield invented the fastest sequence we have to date, the echoplanar imaging method. This technique can scan an entire stack of slices in seconds rather than minutes. Its speed helps us to freeze motion, like the movement of a beating heart. Repeating this stack of slices lets us explore brain function and visualize the complexity of tumors. Extra strong pulses help us visualize stroke. Towards the end of the 20th century, engineers would battle with cumbersome machine sizes, lengthy scanning times and difficulties in getting clear images there was still plenty that MRI could not do. We now use MR routinely almost for everything. This is Dr. Bruce Rosen, professor of radiology at Harvard Medical School. 
I spoke to him about how the 90s and the 2000s were busy periods of development for MRI. Bruce, you've been instrumental in further developing the magnetic resonance imaging methodology. I'd like to talk to you about improvements in MRI imaging over the decades. But first, can you explain how these images help clinicians during the technology's early development? I think the reason why there was so much interest in the radiologic community, even in its earliest phases, it was able to do things that no other technology at the time could do. Up to that point, the way we looked at the brain, typically with CAT scanning, was only able to take pictures. Uh, the technical term was in the uh, axial view. It's a very useful way to look at the brain, but it was limited to that way to look at the brain. The very early 80s, we now had the ability to kind of slice the brain in any orientation we wanted. And so different illnesses, different uh, diseases that we'd be looking for would be best observed in some directions, uh, not in others. Areas that would be easy to miss if you, say, uh, in a conventional axial view, would now be easily visible on the image of uh, the sagittal view. What exactly can MRI scanners help us see now that we couldn't see with earlier scanners? We've gone from blurry, still pictures to very clear, dynamic movies of how the body works. We can actually take kind of the equivalent of movies, of videos, to, again, see dynamic things that are happening in the brain, uh, the heart beating, uh, organs uh, as they're moving, as you're breathing. The big change over the last 20 years is that we've learned how to expand our ability to see what's really dynamically happening within the tissue. Stroke is an excellent example of that. 20 years ago, the MRI images of the anatomy we were taking really weren't able to see a stroke until a day or even two after, well beyond the point where doctors could intervene and actually try to improve the patient's condition. With the development of the advanced technologies, higher field magnets, uh, ways to image uh, more rapidly, more sensitively, we're able to develop tools that can actually see the stroke at its very earliest stages, early enough for physicians to try to uh, stop the spread of the stroke to other parts of uh, the brain. We do have an aging global population. This suggests a future increase in diseases like Alzheimer's disease. What's your view on the role of MRI in neurodegenerative diseases? We're now actually able to track the neurodegenerative process with a precision of just a few tenths of a millimeter. We're able to see the development of vascular lesions in the brain. It's believed that upwards of half of the cognitive decline in mental uh, function that occurs over time in patients with uh, dementia is related to these vascular changes. MR allows us to see with great precision how well uh, perfused with blood the brain is, whether there are changes in that perfusion, and that makes a big impact on somebody's reserve, somebody's ability to maintain uh, normal cognitive function. That's one important ability that we have with our new tools is to really understand what actually is at the root cause. We're talking about giving people healthy, normal brain function for decades uh, longer than they might have if we didn't understand the nature of the problems and weren't able to act accordingly. And MRI not only plays a role in the diagnosis, but also in monitoring and deciding the right treatment or drug therapy. In the future, We're certainly hoping that uh, there are uh, new treatments for diseases like Alzheimer's. 
once we start treating a patient, we want to know that our treatments are working and we want to know that they're safe. This is especially important with this new class of drugs that have just been approved here in the U.S. And MR is uh, really uh, the tool that we use to be able to monitor that the drugs are safe and continue to be safe. What's happening outside of more morphologically driven type of diseases? And when you're talking about areas which are typically not covered by radiology, and a lot of researchers are working on psychology related topics where brain function plays indeed an important role. How do you see the role of MRI in those fields? It's really been a remarkable uh, change. 20 years ago, MRI scanners were only in hospitals and radiology departments. Today, if you're a department of psychology or neuroscience at a major university, you also have an MRI scanner. It's become a tool as common for psychologists as microscopes are for biologists. Scientists uh, around the world now use MRI routinely to study the mechanisms of how the brain goes about its uh, daily functions, how we see the world, how we uh, process language, how we remember things. I'm really hoping the MRI will become as common a tool in helping diagnose and monitor treatment in patients with diseases like schizophrenia as it's been for patients with a knee injury. So many different domains benefit from MRI. Bruce, can you give us an example that illustrates how important MRI has become even outside the fields of medicine or psychology you just mentioned? Not so long ago, the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court made a series of decisions that basically held that young people shouldn't be held culpable for crimes, even very serious crimes like murder, the same way adults do. They did so in part on the basis of imaging data that showed that children's brains continue to develop well through their adolescence uh, into their early adulthood, and thus the notion that they should be held culpable for their actions in the same way as a fully developed adult was uh, considered unreasonable. That's a situation where the imaging technology has already made a huge practice in uh, how we think about law and, and criminal behavior. Our understanding of, of our brains and how they work will have uh, important impact uh, in all elements of our culture, some of which we can anticipate and others which uh, we'll just have to wait and see where uh, society takes us. As the capabilities of magnetic resonance imaging increase, so too will its application across disciplines. AI is going to have a hugely important role in the performing of MR scans and in probably, most importantly, in the interpretation of MR scans. Vivek Mutharango is Professor of Cardiovascular Imaging and Physics at University College London. He also works at Great Ormond Street Hospital and the World Free Hospital. I asked Vivek about the importance of artificial intelligence for this next phase of magnetic resonance imaging and how AI could improve the scanners themselves, the interpretation of scanned images, and lead to an equitable future for global access to MR machines. Vivek, you and your team at UCL are at the frontiers of MRI research. When did you really start to see that certain problems in MRI needed fixing? I've been involved in cardiovascular magnetic resonance imaging for nearly 20 years when I was working at Guy's Hospital under the tutelage of Professor Reza Razavi. We were the first group to do human interventional cardiovascular MR. That's a procedure where the cardiologist will guide a small plastic catheter into one of the chambers of the heart. 
I remember my first day I walked in and it was a very small control room. It was full of MR physicists and engineers and quite nerdy looking, all wearing their short sleeve shirts and pens in their pockets. It was like watching an Apollo launch. One of the things that I took home from that was if you needed this many people in the room at this level of experience and competencies, it wasn't really a long-term clinically viable procedure. Even within a couple of years, all those people had disappeared and there was like one person left and it quickly became boring. And actually that's what you want with new technology. You want it to quickly become boring. Now, when you do cardiovascular MR or even interventional MR, you can make less of an event of it, both for the patient and for the person performing this procedure. Now we can do 13 patients in a morning Everything's becoming routine. And that's the hallmark of a technology that has got a long-term viability in the clinical environment. In my earlier interviews, it emerged that uh, when you're at the forefront of scientific development, you sometimes require an unconventional solution to solve your problem. Have you had a similar experience in your work? We saw a big change when people started using graphical processing units to do the computations. 15-year-old boys, they like very, very realistic violence in their computer games, but their parents don't want to buy them a supercomputer. So gaming cards, so companies like NVIDIA and ATI, they produce these very, very low-cost computational units. Some very clever scientists realized that you could also use exactly the same hardware to do all sorts of complicated scientific things very, very quickly, one of those being MRE construction. I remember the first gaming computer that we bought, we attached it up to the scanner and we were able to do some reconstructions within a time frame that made it clinically usable in a way that was hidden to the operator. They didn't have to do anything. We had this little gaming computer that was doing disco lights, doing all the hard work. With your projects at UCL, it sounds as if you are now making increasingly sophisticated leaps in MRI's development. What role would you give to artificial intelligence in the future of MRI? In artificial intelligence, what we do is we say we have lots of data and we can essentially pair it with lots of gold standard data. The artificial intelligence doesn't necessarily need to know anything about the underlying physics of MR. All it's saying is, here's some nice images, here's some bad images. How do I map between them? We call it artificial intelligence, but it's, it's dumb. And yet there are issues with AI of which we must be aware. Could you just sketch out one such problem? When our old image reconstruction models failed, they failed in a way that was very obvious. The, the images looked terrible. It was obvious that something had gone wrong. When an AI fails, it often produces a fairly realistic looking image. There's just something missing. It produces a beautiful lie. And the beautiful lie is what is dangerous. So how do we circumvent this beautiful lie then? The technical term is hallucination, where the machine learning will hallucinate a feature, that it will add something or it will subtract something. You can frame the problem in such a way that it's less likely that the ML model will actually hallucinate. You mentioned data sets and getting gold standard data. Could you give our listeners an impression of what researchers need to think about when gathering information? 
it is incredibly important that we properly sample the whole domain of possible patients. We may have populations in the West who are not ethnically originally from the West, and they may not have enough numbers that you can sample them correctly within your national population. If you sample globally, then even if you have different diaspora in different parts of the world, it doesn't matter because you've sampled some of the genetic aspects of them. All of the hard work is getting your data, making sure that the result of your model is something that you can disseminate and utilize on a broad group of patients. Of course, we must think globally when we collect data. And the same global outlook is also necessary for ensuring access to this type of healthcare. The benefits of magnetic resonance imaging only come to fruition if digitalization and access to MRI are increased at a global scale. Per year, roughly one in seven people are getting an MRI scan here in Germany and one in nine in the US. Nevertheless, waiting lists for MRI scanners exist in both countries. In West Africa, there are only enough scanners to serve one in 1,000 people per year. We simply don't have enough machines in the world. And yet MRI is critical to the future of medicine. How can we ensure, Vivek, that everyone benefits? Access is about cost, and MR is a costly, costly modality. If MR is consistently 10, 20 times more expensive than other imaging modalities, we'll cost ourselves out of existence. Cost is the asteroid, and we are the dinosaurs. Once you can get scanners that don't require huge amounts of helium, don't require huge rooms, that changes the calculus for doing MR scanners all around the world. The other side of things is the time. The cost for the scanner is the scanner. So the more patients you do, the better. So if we can reduce the time of a scan, we improve access, both in developed countries and in developing countries. Reducing time brings us back to your first point about having too many experts in the room. How can we make MR scanners accessible to, say, rural hospitals, where it may be more difficult to find MR technologists? You need to make it simpler to do and simpler to process. If you're doing something like congenital cardiovascular MR, and some of these children have complicated anatomy, MR technologists have to have huge amounts of training. So you've got two very experienced and therefore very expensive individuals sitting in the room for every MR scan. Suddenly your costs have skyrocketed. But AI can help because over the last 15 years, we've done more than 20,000 scans. And that data can help us train models that will automatically perform cardiovascular MR with no one really in the room. We've also got all that data to help us interpret the images. All of that reduces costs and will ultimately improve access. I know that you're an expert in congenital heart disease and you're dealing a lot with children. In your work at Great Ormond Street Hospital, what have you found MRI clinicians need to do, especially when working with pediatric patients? The MR scanner is a scary place for children. If you want to get reasonably diagnostic data, children have to lie very still. They have to follow commands from the technologist or the radiographer doing the scan. Now, in cardiovascular MR, we do a lot of breath holding 
to get nice, high-quality images of the heart. An adult can do the 20 to 30 breath holds needed for conventional cardiovascular MR. The six-year-old child can't. They, they might be able to do two or three. They don't want to be in a scanner for an hour. You've got to change the paradigm slightly. It's, it's, it's this idea of it not being an event, it being routine. Can you tell us more about the research you've done in this area? One of the things that myself and my research team have really been pushing forward over the last 15 years is fast imaging and imaging that doesn't require breath holdings. You just lie in the scanner. We actually are lucky enough to have a TV linked to our scanner. You watch a cartoon for 10 minutes and then you're out. About two thirds of children prefer fast MR over echocardiography. That's really important when we're talking about pediatric cardiovascular disease or any pediatric disease. I'm curious where you personally want to see the development of MRI and how long do you think it will take us to get there? I would like MR to become the sort of go-to imaging modality for a whole range of things, not just imaging, but measuring physiology during exercise or guiding catheters or needles when we're actually doing a semi-surgical or interventional procedure. Most people don't have symptoms when they're sitting down or when they're lying down, certainly. They have symptoms when they're running for the bus or running after their kids. So you have to replicate that slightly. The best way to do it is with exercise. But the MR scanner is not an easy place to do exercise. One of the things that I hope for in the future is that MR scanners become more accessible, both from the terms of the patient, but also people who may be working around the patient. I truly think that by the end of the decade, MR will be as easy and routine as an echocardiogram in cardiovascular imaging. MRI really has been a story of experimentation. From Jürgen Hennig's inventive methods to compensate for a lack of materials in China in 1983, to Vivek Mutharango's use of a gaming chip to compute better quality images. The 50-year history of MRI shows us the importance of tenacity and creativity in the scientific domain. MRI also has a remit that is clearly much broader than the so-called hard sciences. Museums can use them to scan objects that will help us learn more about the histories behind cultural artifacts. And as Bruce Rosen pointed out, the law, among other subjects, continues to benefit from what brain scans can tell us about our psychological development. But the final word must go to the future of MRI and the responsibility we have to our global population. Everyone deserves access to MRI. I look forward to addressing this challenge with researchers and clinicians in the years to come. You've been listening to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Healthineers. We pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere. Subscribe to us and always get the latest episodes in your podcast feed or visit siemens-healthineers.com slash podcast for more. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Healthineers.